Let's ask for God's help as we turn to his word here. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that all scripture is breathed out by you and all of it is profitable. And even this difficult account is profitable for us. So Lord, I'm, I'm praying that you'd give us eyes wide open to see the truth here. As disciples of you, Lord, we want to be learners. We want to learn here from you. We want to learn what you've said, what you, what you want from us today in light of what you've said here in this part of your word. Holy Spirit, I'm praying that by your power, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the glory of Jesus shining through this passage and that we would be moved and changed and made to look more like him as we encounter his glory here. And I ask this for the sake of his glory among the nations. Amen. Please have a seat. This past week, my wife showed me a video that uh, she came across of, uh, it was a news clip of a couple of uh, people who were being interviewed in the middle of a snowstorm and they were out jogging in the snowstorm and the newscaster was asking them about it and they were talking about how great their shoes were and how uh, as a result of how awesome their shoes were they they weren't going to slip they were doing just fine and they um they were continued on as, as the camera panned and followed them. And as the camera followed them off screen, one of them slipped and fell completely on their backside in front of national television. And uh, we laughed. We, we laughed a lot, uh, actually. I don't know about you, but I find it funny when people fall and other people do I'm not sure why. There's hours on YouTube of people tripping and falling and having accidents. And for some reason, we just find that really funny. And maybe you don't and you think there's something wrong with those of us who do. But um, it, it's, it, it was funny. It's not so funny when someone trips and falls and stumbles in real life, though, is it? It's not so funny when someone who is doing well on the walk of faith falls and stumbles and lands on their spiritual backside, so to speak. It is a very painful thing to see. It's very difficult. And it happens to Abram in our passage today. Abram has a pattern, if you haven't noticed by now. After almost every time that Abram experiences some great, strong encounter with God, he goes out and he fails. It happens almost every time. Sometimes there's a little bit of a delay, but there's, there's this pattern. We're going to see this is not the last time. Right? After the first time he was called to the land, he goes in faith, and then he keeps on going to Egypt, and, 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 and then this happens, and then, and then other things happen in, in the future, and it's... It's a really, really sad thing to see. And yet, as we're going to see, God's grace is there in the midst of Abram's stumbling. 
And I think that should be encouraging to us because which one of us here is not a stumbler? Have ha- which one of us here has not stumbled in our walk of faith? Which one of us here has not had that moment of confidence saying, oh yeah, look at my shoes, so to speak. I'm doing great. And then boom. And as we watch how God deals with and responds to Abram, I think we're going to see um, there's a lot for us to be encouraged by here. So um, with that, with that, let's, uh, let's turn to the passage. Um, I've been having, you may have noticed, a little bit of technical difficulty with my iPad, uh, not quite getting my notes perfectly in, in shape, but I think I just got that fixed. So uh, I think we're ready to go. So let's, let's look at the, uh, this passage here. Um, the first verse and the last verse of chapter 16 are kind of like bookends in that they uh, frame this passage by sort of referring to the same kind of idea. And so I'm calling them in the outline here, the prologue and the epilogue. And the prologue in verse one is, is what, what we can call the promise versus the reality. Uh, the promise is that uh, Abram was going to have a child. That's what God had promised to him. And the reality was that no child existed. Yet. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's, that's the reality. The promise, right, last, last week, the chapter, it was, it was strong there. The promise that he was going to have a child. And the reality here and the promise are not yet lining up with each other. By, by the way, before I keep going, I, I just am noticing this here in my notes. I missed it because I was trying to fix something here. Abram's pattern of stumbling is not a bug in his story. It's actually a feature in the story. Because it makes it really clear that Abram's not actually the main character here. God's the main character. Abram's a supporting character whose both steps of faith and stumbles of faith highlight God as the main character. Okay, that's that that's the that's where we want to go. Okay, so the, the, the prologue, Abram's got this promise, and the reality is there's no children. And the promise, the reality, they're not lining up with each other. So what happens? What happens is Sarai comes up with a plan. We move very quickly into Sarai's plan, the second big step in the passage here. And it begins with her speech. There's, there's kind of four steps here in Sarai's plan. It begins with her speech. Now, this is the first time in the biblical story here that we hear Sarai talk. And you'll remember the first speech of someone in, in the story is often important. It says something important about her. Uh, and the first thing that she says has to do with what's one of the most important things about her is that she doesn't have a child. So, so verse two, first half of verse two, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That's very interesting here. Sarai does not say, I don't have a child. What does she say? She says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Is she right? Is she right to lay the responsibility at the feet of God for the fact that she has not yet born children? She's absolutely right. Sarai understands the sovereignty of God. Sarai understands that God is the possessor of heaven and earth, as as we've heard, that her womb was under God's power to open or to close as he saw fit, and that ultimately, if she has no children, ultimately that's because of the Lord's decision. He could have changed this, and he hadn't. So yes, theologically accurate. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's a difficult truth, but it's true. 
But then, then things go sideways. Okay? Maybe at some point here, having good theology doesn't always mean you make wise decisions. Okay, so so she goes sideways here in the second half of verse two, where, where we really get to her plan as she continues to speak. She says, "Take my servant Hagar as your wife and have children with her." Well, where did where did this idea come from? And and and, and the fact is, Sarah didn't make this up. This was a practice in the ancient world that, that was, was understood and known. If you couldn't have children with your wife, then you'd try to have children with your wife's servant. I mean, Jacob did this with both the servants of, of, of uh, Rachel and, uh, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, Rachel and Leah. And so this was something that comes up later on in the story. This is just what she did. And that's led some people to say, well, don't be so hard on, on Sarai and Abram. They're not doing anything wrong here. This is just what people did. This was just kind of like adopting. If, if you can't conceive, this is the idea here. But I'm not so sure that we should, should jump to the conclusion that this is no big deal. I'm not so sure. I think there's some pretty big indicators in the text here that, that what they're doing here is, is not wise, is not good. And, and here's, here's the big reason. For years, God had been promising children to Abram and Sarai. For years. As Abram and Sarai didn't do this, they didn't go get another woman and try to have kids. It was just Abram and Sarai being faithful to each other for years. And God just kept reassuring them, you're going to have a child, you're going to have a child, you're going to have a child. Which means that God meant for Abram and Sarai to wait on him, that he was going to give them for a child, right? If God wanted to give Abram offspring through his wife's servant, don't you think God would have told him so? Don't you think God, when Abram said uh, in the last chapter, behold, I continue childless, you've given me no heir. God could have said, well, Abram, why haven't you thought of Hagar? But God didn't. He said, I'm going to give you a child. It's implied, stay the course, Abram. Stay the course. It's like if my kid was trying to raise money for, to go to camp, and they said, Dad, I don't have enough money. And I said, you will have enough money to go to camp. And then the next day, they turned around and went up to you and said, oh, my dad's not doing anything. Can I have some money to go to camp? I'd be like, I told you that, that this would be okay. In other words, I'm going to take care of it. And it's inappropriate to go to try to find some other way around that. And, 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 and as we go on, just, you know, we're going to see some pretty big hints within this passage that, that this was a bad idea. But, but, but just here we can see God's promises have been encouraging Abram and Sarai to stay the course, staying faithful to each other, waiting on him. And Sarai's plan here uh, ignores the promises of God. It was a faithless thing to do. It's just one more example of someone who got tired waiting for God, they got tired of obeying God, and they decided to help God out with their own little scheme. So the next step here in in Sarai's plan is that Abram listens. This is in the second half of verse 2. Abram, who's been patiently waiting, trusting God, is now approached by his wife who's got this great plan. It means, wow, I I could potentially have that child I want in nine months if all goes well. And so what's Abram do? He listens. Verse 2, second part, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now this is one of the places that, that the, the, the wording of Genesis is tipping us off that, that he was not acting wisely here. Because when's the last time in Genesis we've heard so-and-so listened to the voice of his wife? Genesis 3.17, Adam. Okay? 
And he listened to the voice of his wife when she offered him the fruit. It's the same language. It's the same wording. And, and we've seen how deliberately Genesis is written. It's written so deliberately. We're supposed to see a connection here. Just like Adam, Abram is approached by his wife who has a really bad idea. And instead of stepping up for what's right, he lets himself be led into sin Now, men here who are married, you know that if your wife says something wise and sensible to you, you'd be an idiot to ignore her. But I hope we can see from these two accounts, both Adam and Abram, the danger of blindly listening and passively following your wife or anybody without carefully thinking and weighing what they're saying, seeing if it's biblical, seeing if it's true, and being willing to stand up for what's right. How much pain came into Abram's life and the world as a result of him just going with the flow here? That's what he does. The man of faith stumbles by not doing anything. He just goes with the flow and he stumbles big time. So now uh, the the third part here, C, is that Sarai acts. In response to Abram's passive listening, Sarai acts. Now we might think that Abram would act. We might think, and Abram took Hagar to be his wife. But no, look at how verse 3 is written. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian. Okay, Who's acting here? Who's the actor? It's Sarai. Abram's just, again, just Mr. Passive, just letting stuff happen. Sarai takes Hagar and gives her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, once again, this is another clue, because where have we seen these words about taking and giving in Genesis before? These two words in same kind of context, same chapters we saw before, Genesis 3, 6, where Eve took of the fruit and gave it to her husband. So again, this is deliberately, Uh, trying to make us think about that. It's the same kind of thing that's happening. And so here it's kind of like Hagar's the forbidden fruit. And and Sarai's plan works. Verse 4 says that Hagar, who's now Abram's second wife, Hagar conceives. So we've seen Sarai speak, Abram listens, Sarai act, and now the fourth step here, Hagar responds, or Hagar reacts. Halfway through verse 4. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This is the first of several places in Scripture where we see a rivalry between two women, one of whom is pregnant and the other of whom cannot get pregnant. Hagar ain't just Sarai's little servant anymore. She's Abram's wife. She's pregnant with Abram's heir. I mean, in the ancient world, bearing children was one of the most important things a woman could do, if not the most important, easily the most important. And and Hagar's arrived. She's just got the promotion of a lifetime. And Sarai, well, Sarai doesn't have any children. Hagar feels elevated. She feels like she's, you know, leveled up to this next level in life. And I don't know, did Hagar rub it in? Did Did she stop listening to Sarai? Did she just smirk smugly at her? The text here just says she looked with contempt on her. Like, we all know what that's like, right? When someone just is looking at someone else just with hatred because they've got something the other person doesn't. The relationship between Sarai and Hagar has been forever changed. 
So that's the first cycle here of Sarai's plan. And this brings us right into the, the, the next big cycle here, our third big stop in the passage. We've seen the prologue. We've seen Sarai's plan. Now we see that Sarai's plan backfires. And we've already kind of seen the indication that Sarai's plan is backfiring. It's not working out so well. If you want to know, um, what does the Bible say about taking more than one wife? Just look at what happens every time someone does it. So there's some people who will say um, the Old Testament allowed for polygamy, which means a man having more than one more than one wife. The Old Testament allows for that. It's not until the New Testament that we see polygamy being being banned, where you can only have only have one wife. Now, I think that's a pretty shallow way of reading the Bible, because what we should ask is. How does the Old Testament portray polygamy when a man marries more than one wife? And what we see is that every time the Old Testament describes a man marrying more than one woman, it never works out great for him. It's always a source of pain, right? So if you were to just be like, hmm, I wonder if polygamy, I wonder if marrying more than one, one person at one time is a good idea. I'm going to study every time it happened in the Old Testament and see how it worked out for them. I'll just spare you the work. It doesn't work out good for them anytime. Okay. So, so we, we can't be so shallow to just say, oh, never says it's bad. Well, you know, it's like if every time someone stuck their finger in a light bulb socket, they got hurt. Um, you learn from that, hopefully. Okay. And that's, that's what's happening here. So as Sarah's plan backfires, what we see is that the same cycle repeats these same four steps we saw with Sarai's plan, now as Sarai's plan backfires, we see the same four steps. We see Sarai speaks, Abram listens, Sarai acts, and Hagar responds. What does Sarai do as her plan backfires? Well, she speaks again to Abram. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai's upset with how Hagar's treating her. And instead of saying, you know, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. You know, maybe the grass wasn't greener on the other side. You know, maybe I could have foreseen this. Maybe I should have just kept waiting on the Lord. Instead of being humble, she does what Eve did, what Adam did, what you've probably done many times in your life, is you try to shift the blame onto someone else. Well, but they, they did it first, you know. We, 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 no one has to teach us how to blame shift. And, and people do it all the time. Just watch the news for five minutes. I'm sure you'll see someone shifting the blame onto someone else. And so Hagar, sorry, Sarah is now blaming Abram. You did this to me. As if it was his idea. As if he forced this on her. That's what people do. Now, Abram was her husband. He was the man. He did have responsibility here. But Sarai seems to be acting like Abram forced this on her, as if, as if he deserves God's judgment for Hagar's bad behavior. So what's Abram do? He listens. Is it, which is just disappointing. I, I'd hope this would be the moment where Abram would stand up and say, Sarai, let, let's talk. Um... And let's get some things straight here between you and me. And would lovingly lead her. I wish that happened here. But Abram just keeps on being Mr. Passive. Verse 6. And Abram said to Sarai, 
Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Translation, yes, dear, whatever you say. I mean, come on, Abram. That's not just Sarai's servant anymore. Hagar is your wife now. You helped create this mess. You're responsible for it. Deal with it, man. That's what I would want to say to him, with respect. But instead, Abram, who could be so courageous in battle against foreign kings, is weak and passive with his upset wife. And he does what I'm sure many other men have done throughout history, which is do whatever it takes to make her not be upset anymore. Abram maybe believed the phrase, happy wife, happy life. Forget everything, forget the truth, just do whatever it takes to appease her so that you can just get back to feeling happy. Husbands, there's a word for that kind of behavior, and that word is wimpy. Emotions, whoever's emotions they are, whoever it is in the household, whoever's emotions they are, cannot be allowed to dominate a home. And, and husbands can't, can't back down. I mean, husbands do this all the time, whether it's whoever it is in their household, whether it's an upset teenager or whether it's an upset wife or whether it's, it's in another situation, if it's an upset this or that, they, 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 they do whatever it takes to appease the person and they let the emotions rule the roost. And that's, that's not okay. The irony here is, is just think of that phrase, happy wife, happy life. A godly wife will be her happiest long-term when her godly husband acts like a man and lays down his life to sacrificially lead her instead of just appeasing her if she's, if she's not happy about something. Now, I'll admit, sacrificially leading husband, happy wife, doesn't have the same ring as happy wife, happy life, but it's true, okay? Sacrificially leading husbands create happy homes. And Abram, Abram is not doing that here. Even if Sarai didn't know it, she needed her husband to step up here, to lovingly speak the truth to her, and to lead them both back to a place of, of truth. And he needs to lead Hagar She's his wife now. He's responsible for her. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Abram's, Abram got into this situation by just being passive, and Abram makes the situation worse by just continuing to be passive. Okay, honey, do whatever you'd like. You fix this however you'd like. And so Sarai, with no leadership from her husband, but full permission to act on her upset emotions does what what does verse 6 say? She dealt harshly with her. Now, just, just so you know, before I go on, I know that male emotions are also a thing and that, and that wives having to deal with their husband's emotions are also a thing. So just so you know, I don't think this is all one-sided, but I'm just talking just about the dynamics that we see in the text here. It's, you know, Sarai's upset, Abram's being passive. Um, and he does have a specific role to, to lead. But I, I know... Male emotions can be just as, if not more, destructive. And, and uh, there's a whole lot of things that, that we're not talking about as we just kind of look at what this text is saying. So Sarai, upset and given full permission, goes and she deals harshly with Hagar. So what, is, what does this look like? Uh, d- did she use cruel words? Was she physically abusive? 
Was she making pregnant Hagar get up early to perform hard labor? We don't know. But we, we don't, like, this is cruel. This is really cruel. A pregnant woman is in a very vulnerable spot in life. I remember when, when Amy first got pregnant with Judah, the, the appalling cowardice of, of men who get women pregnant and then leave them just sunk in for the first time to me. Like when you actually see a woman in that vulnerable spot, not just physically vulnerable, but with all the questions about the future and this child and what's going to happen, that, that a man could bring a woman into that spot and then just say, see you later, became way more of a big deal to me in that spot. And we should see that what Sarah is doing here with Hagar, there's no excuse for it. Whatever she does, it's so bad that um, verse 9 refers to it as affliction. Okay, That's the same word for what Israel experienced in Egypt before the Exodus. Okay, they, Hagar was being afflicted by Sarai. And so how does Hagar respond? She runs away. Whatever Sarai did was so bad that Hagar thought it was a safer bet to be alone and pregnant out in the wilderness than to be with Sarai. Hagar joins the many women throughout history who have nobody to help them and who will run anywhere to get away from their abuser. This is heartbreaking. This is really sad. And this could be the end of the story. How long would you make it alone in the desert? I mean, no, no offense, but probably not as far as Hagar. I mean, these people kind of knew this stuff better than we do. But nevertheless, Hagar, in the desert, encounters someone she was not expecting to meet. And that brings us to our fourth major stop in the passage this morning. We've seen the, the, the prologue. We've seen Sarai's plan. We've seen Sarai's plan backfire. And now, number four, we meet Hagar's God. This is one of the most precious parts of the story. Hagar's God. And there's three, there's three elements here. The first is the conversation. What do we see here? Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. From what we know about Shur, it sounds like Hagar's on her way back to Egypt, which is where she came from. She's found some water in the wilderness, but there she is found, she is found by the angel of the Lord. This is the first clear reference to an angel in the Bible. There's some indications of, of divine beings like the sons of God back in chapter 6, but this is the first time we meet an angel by name. It's also the first time we meet this mysterious character who's known as the angel of the Lord. The word angel has to do with, with being a messenger. And so this, this is God's messenger, the Lord's messenger. Now, something we should understand, in the ancient world, a, a king's messenger spoke for the king and, and represented the king and would be treated with the respect due a king. Okay, so if the king's messenger came, you, you, it was as if the king was there. And so that's why if you mistreated the king's messengers, it was like mistreating the king and it could start a war. That's what happened in 2 Samuel 10. 
And so this, this understanding that the messenger represents the king, it explains that when the Old Testament describes the, the, the angel of the Lord showing up, sometimes it almost sounds like God himself is there. When they see the angel of the Lord, it's almost as if they've seen God himself. When they hear the angel of the Lord, it's as if they've heard from God himself. Hagar sure thinks that in this passage. And, and, and so that makes some people say, well, is the angel of the Lord actually the son of God? who we later took the name of Jesus in his incarnation? Is this, is this the second person of the Trinity? Or is it just an angel, maybe Gabriel, and because he represents God, it's as if God is there. It's, it's, tough. it's tough to know for sure. But I hope you'd agree, whether this is the person later known as the Lord Jesus, or whether this is someone like Gabriel or another angel, I mean, this, this is pretty significant. For Hagar, runaway slave, out in the desert, to be found by the angel of the Lord. And so what does he say to her in this conversation? He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, that's who she is. She's still a Sarai servant. Where have you come from and where are you going? God often asks us questions that he knows the answer to already, but he gives us a chance to speak. But just notice here, Hagar is known, called by name. Do you know that this is the only time in the Bible where a woman is called by name by God or one of the angels? And actually, not just the only time in the Bible, this is the only time in all of ancient Near Eastern literature where a woman is called by name by a deity. Hagar is the only person that we have record of who gets referred, the only woman who gets referred to by name. This is very, very special. And in response, Hagar just tells the truth. Second half of verse eight, she says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Okay, she doesn't try to varnish it. Yeah, I'm running away from, from Sarai. And what does the angel say to her? Verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit to her. She has to go back. Why? Well, as we're going to see, it's going to be important, if only for a season, that her son gets raised as the son of Abram. That's going to be important for her son, for, for a season, to receive the blessing and the protection of Abram's house. Hagar needs to go back. But what we see here is that Hagar is speechless. Hagar has nothing to say. Go back to my abuser? Which, by the way, is not advice for every woman who's ever been abused. Okay, I, uh, This is a specific situation here. And I've counseled women who are being abused. You need to get somewhere safe. Okay, So, so just please hear that. This is not for all time. But in this specific situation, she had to go back. But she's speechless. So the angel of the Lord keeps talking. Remember how and -and so-and-so said, and -and so-and-so said, and -and so-and-so said, if the other person doesn't talk, it's like they're speechless, and so they keep talking. So verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. 
That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's the promise given to Abram. And Sarai bears Abram's child. So in some way, her child gets the, this promise of Abram that, that her son, her child, is going to be multiplied well beyond the ability to count. So now Hagar's really speechless, okay? Go back, but I'm going to have so many, like my offspring is going to grow and I'm not going to be able to count it. Like that's incredible. And so she still has nothing to say. She's just speechless. So in verses 11 and 12, the angel goes on and, and makes a formal pronouncement to her in very lofty terms. And the angel of the Lord said to her, verse 11 and 12, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. Big, big bonus there, right? That, that, that this was a son, a firstborn son was such an important thing. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kingsmen. Man, there is something to being from Abraham, right? Look at these promises that come to Ishmael. Once again, these, these words shouldn't sound all that strange to us. This isn't the, the last time that an angel tells someone they're going to have a child and, and tells them what their name is going to be. Okay? This is the first time. You know who else is in this group? Who else in the Bible gets told by an angel or by God what to name their child? There's, there's uh, Isaac, Abram's other son. There's the virgin who conceives and bears Emmanuel, and there's Jesus. So Hagar is like one of four in this group of people. So uh, Jesus is is the Emmanuel, but I'm saying there, there was there was possibly that child. You remember this when we looked at this in in Isaiah chapter seven, where there was possibly a, a child known as Emmanuel who was born, who was a foreshadowing of Jesus. But anyways, there's only four. Hagar is in a very exclusive group here. And she's told to call her son's name uh, Ishmael, or in Hebrew, Yishmael, which means God hears. God hears. Isn't that something? And that's explained in verse 11. God has listened to her affliction. Doesn't it make all the difference to know when you've been going through a hard time? Doesn't it make all the difference to know that God's actually heard you? Isn't that our struggle of faith sometimes as we cry out to him and we pray and nothing changes? And we feel like our prayers are just going up into the air. What a comfort to know. God has been listening. God heard. God hears. And her child's name is going to be a reminder of that. Verse 12 goes on to tell her what kind of a son he's going to be. Now this is interesting. So you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Yishmael or Ishmael. And here's what he's going to be like. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Okay, kinsmen. I don't know how encouraging this would have been to Hagar. I don't know. Uh, this doesn't sound like a bright future. Okay, wild donkeys are are known for their stubbornness and their inability to be subdued. I mean, 
My understanding is even tame donkeys can be really stubborn. Okay, I remember watching uh, when I hiked the Grand Canyon, them trying to deal with mules, and, and, and these mules were so stubborn, they were almost falling off the cliffs because they refused to be led. So that's tame. Think of a wild donkey, okay? Like, really stubborn. We see that in, in Job 39, 5-8. So Ishmael is not going to fit in with social conventions. Ishmael is not going to be the favorite uncle at family gatherings, okay? Ishmael is not going to be a great politician uh, who just makes everyone happy. He's going to be a man of conflict and domination. But, but, but here, here's, here's the thing. Uh, there's some, one of the things we need to see here is that what this prophecy means is that he's going to live. That was not a given in those days. You know how many babies died in childbirth? You know how many moms died in childbirth? Hagar would have rejoiced to know that her son's going to live. I watched a little clip of a movie this past week of, of a woman who was sentenced to 10 years in a Soviet gulag. And she starts to cry and says, I get to live? You're right? That's almost, maybe there's some parallels here. Um, and, and, he's, and here's the thing. Ishmael is not going to be a, a, a slave. Through conflict, he's going to come out on top. He's going to dwell over against all his kinsmen. He's not going to be a little slave. He's going to be a powerful man. Here's the bigger thing, though. This isn't actually about Ishmael and his character. This is about the fact that Hagar knows that she's been seen by God. Her suffering has not been missed. She's been seen and heard, and she's been given a future. So now, third, we see the name. How does Hagar respond? She responds by giving God a name. This is astounding. Do you know how many other people in the Bible give God a name? Zero. Hagar is the only person in all of Scripture who names God. I mean, naming something's pretty powerful. This, I shall call this. Like, that, that God allows this to happen and records it in Scripture is astounding. But that's what happens. Verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. So God gave her son a name that means God hears. And so she gives God a name. El Rai, you are a God of seeing or you are a God who sees me. She's been heard by God. She's been seen by God. And in some mysterious way, she's seen God through this angel here. It's interesting if you think about seeing in this story. Hagar saw that she was pregnant. She looked with contempt on Sarai. And now she has seen and been seen by God. And she's astonished. And God records this name for himself given to him by a runaway Egyptian slave for all time. We see something of the heart of God here. Now we come to the epilogue. The reality versus the promise. What does Hagar do? She goes back. Verse 15 says, She bore Abram a son. Abram called his name Ishmael, so she must have told him. And the chapter closes out by telling us Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Okay? Verse 1, Sarai bore him no children. Verse 16, Hagar bore him a son. Once again, we find the promise and the reality are in conflict. God promised Abram a son. At the beginning of the chapter, he had no son. At the end of the chapter, he's got a son with the wrong woman. 
In both cases, the reality is still at odds with the promise. See, Abram tried to fix things and try to make this happen himself, and it didn't work. We're going to see in the coming chapters that this scheme doesn't really work out for them well. It doesn't solve any tensions. It doesn't solve any dilemmas. It doesn't erase God's promise. There's just this new mess that they've got to deal with as they wait for God to keep his promise. And we're going to see that in the following, three, the following weeks. In many ways, this chapter sets up what comes in the next weeks. Josh is preaching next Sunday in the first half of chapter 17, and the story keeps going. But for us this morning, as we reflect on these verses that we've seen, there's three truths that I want us to, to, to very briefly reflect on that we can take home for ourselves from this chapter. And the first has to do with the relationship between faith and patience, faithful waiting. Okay? If we learn anything from Abram and Sarai in this story, it's the danger of getting impatient with God's timing and trying to make things happen ourselves. If that were a temptation for Abram and Sarai, how much more is it a temptation for us to get impatient? I mean, we're used to, you know, Tylenol taking care of, 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 of our owies, and we're used to microwaves heating up our food right away, and we're used to high-speed internet. I mean, you, most of us have internet in our homes right now that's faster than, than what big companies had numbers of years ago. Like, it's just, it's insane what we, how, we're used to airplanes. I mean, think of you, you can hop on a plane and be halfway around the world in, in just hours. It's just, we're used to things being fast, 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 fast. And so how much more hard is it for us to be patient and await? Maybe this applies to you in specific ways. Maybe the Lord has you as in a waiting journey right now. Maybe you've asked him for things or he's promised you things in his word and they're just not happening. Maybe it's a, it's a job or a, an opportunity. Maybe it's a relationship or a relationship that you want to be, have mended. Maybe it's a child that you want or a child you want to come back to the Lord. Maybe it's for some good to come out of your suffering. You know, God promised all things for good and you're just not seeing it. It's so easy for us to get impatient and then to start to act unwisely like Abram and Sarai did. We manipulate and scheme and try to make stuff happen. In the worst situations, people end their own lives, which you can now do with the help of a doctor. Tired of waiting for God to bring the life to its own end, or even worse than this, even worse than this. I've watched people lose their faith entirely and walk away from God because they just ran out of patience for him. How we need to learn the lesson of faith from Abram and from the big story of the Bible as a whole. God doesn't work on our timelines. There's often huge gaps between promise and fulfillment. And God teaches his people to wait on him because it's important that we do that. As we're going to see as the story of Abram goes on, it brings God glory and it makes us be more like him. So wherever you are in your walk of faith this morning, is there a place where you're being tempted to be impatient? Come on, come on, answer me, please. Give me the request I'm asking for. And God is needing to remind you through his word this morning to wait on him and to trust him as you wait. Second take-home truth here, suffering to know God. Hagar suffered. And she was never told, well, here's what your suffering was for. But she did know that in the midst of her suffering, she was seen and known by God. What, what did Hagar gain from her suffering? She gained God, the knowledge of God. Just like Job, right? What did Job gain from all his suffering? He gained the knowledge of God. 
And so many of you in this room know this so well. You've suffered, you've walked through deep valleys, and in those valleys, the living God has met you, and you've come through knowing him better than you did before. You've come to know Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings in a way that you wouldn't have known him if your life was just easy breezy, everything you wanted it to be. And we need that perspective as we face the future. I'll never forget, after my mom died of cancer and we went through that big suffering and, and, and God drew us so close to himself and I learned so much. You know what I was for the next several years? Terrified of more suffering. Terrified that something was going to happen to one of our kids or something was going to happen to my wife. Every time I'd be at work and the phone would ring, I would think it was going to be bad news. And how we need this perspective that, Lord, you were there with me then. What's going to change in the future? And if you call me to walk through deep waters with you, if you're there, like you were there for Hagar, and I get to know you better, I'm okay with that. How, how we need to know that whether our suffering is past, present, or future, that, that, that God will be with us like he was there with Hagar. And we're going to get to see and know him deeper and better through it. There's more on this in your study guide, by the way. We dig into all of these in the study guide that the small groups do, but you've each got one in your bulletin you can take home. Number three, we can't miss maybe the most obvious point in this story. Abram blew it. He lost patience. He blew it. He was a poor husband to Hagar. He was a poor husband to Sarai. Did this mean his story was over? I mean, not a chance, right? We, we know that. Not a chance. There were consequences, painful consequences, but God was at work. Because like we're going to sing here in a moment, his mercy is more. Last week, God committed to atone for all of Abram's sins. And so it's not over. Some of you still feel like you're in chains to past sins. Some of you still feel like even though you've confessed, and ask forgiveness, your sins are the special kind that God can't let go of quite so easily. Jesus' grace is enough for everybody else, but not for you. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was true for all the other people, but not for you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You gotta let that go. It's a lie. There's nothing true about that. There is grace and mercy in God for Abram, for Hagar, and for you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you're hanging on to this idea that you're outside of God's mercy, would would you ask him today for the grace to believe that his mercy is more? Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to walk alongside of Abram and Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael. Lord, how we grieve to see the strong stumble, but how we rejoice to see that your grace is enough and your mercy is more. So Lord, whatever we need to take home from this passage today, whether it's learning patience whether it's learning to not fear suffering because we know you are going to be there or whether it's learning that your grace is enough or whether it's other elements in this passage, God, would you help us to take it with us 
Would you help us to apply it Would you, by faith in you? Would you help us to be strong in our own walks of faith? We can't do this ourselves, so would you help us, Lord? Would your power be at work in us through your word? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Team, come on up. Let's, let's sing together.